Hello, and welcome to Pharmacological Histories, a series from the MIT Press podcast. In this series of interviews, I'll be asking authors to reflect on the social, cultural, and political histories of drug use. In last week's episode, I spoke to Nancy Campbell about naloxone, the drug that reverses overdoses, and the complex ways in which that drug operates in both legal and illegal contexts. In this, the second episode, we'll be continuing to look at drug use within a medicalized context as I speak to Mikhail Sekaris, a leading cancer specialist, regular contributor to the New York Times and author of When Blood Breaks Down. In his book, Mikhail tells the compelling stories of three adult leukemia patients, their treatment, the disease, and the drugs developed to treat it. To get us started, could you introduce yourself to listeners and tell them a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, well, my name is Mikhail Sekaris. I'm director of the leukemia program at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, in the USA. And I'm also vice chair for clinical research here in the Cancer Center. Uh, one of the other hats I wear is as chair of the entire Cleveland Clinic Enterprise Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. So we make decisions about what drugs are, are included on the formulary for um, all Cleveland Clinic hospitals and which we decide to not include. Additionally, I have a background at the FDA. I was a member and chaired the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee at the FDA for five years. And also you're a writer. And I'm a writer, yeah. right. Yeah. And, <laughs> I almost yeah. forgot. Yeah. And I wrote the book, uh, When Blood Breaks Down, Life Lessons from Leukemia yeah. for the MIT Press. Yeah, which is what we're going to talk about today for the most part. But also, uh, am I right in thinking that you've got another book that you're currently writing about the FDA and that process as well? Yes, I'm working on another book where I will be discussing both the history of the FDA, how regulatory decisions are made, and I'll be focusing on a couple of drugs in particular that had, let's just say, a, not the most straightforward process to getting uh, FDA approved. So the book that has been published, When Blood Breaks Down, that's about your experience as a doctor treating patients with leukemia. I wanted to keep it really simple to start off with. Could you sort of talk people through about what's actually happening to the body when someone has leukemia? I think most people will be familiar with it, but I don't think many people will be as familiar as they would like to be with what it actually is, what's actually happening in the body when someone gets leukemia. Well, can I just say, thank goodness, most people aren't familiar with uh, what happens <laughs> in the body when they get leukemia. The, yeah, leukemia true. is scary. Um, yeah. When I was growing up, my uh, grandparents, so just two generations uh, separated from me, uh, wouldn't let us say the word cancer out loud. They always whispered it. And um, when I uh, wrote my first book, I, being a good Jewish grandson, of course, gave this, the first thing I did was give it to my mother and my grandmother. I had the word cancer in the title and my grandmother immediately <laughs> hid it on her bookshelf so yeah. no one would see the title. So it's scary. Uh, in When Blood Breaks Down, I write about three patients who are composites of people I've treated over almost uh, two decades. One is an older gentleman who has a new diagnosis of acute leukemia. Uh, the other is a woman who's about my age. She's uh, coming hard on 50, uh, who has a diagnosis of acute leukemia as well, but a different type of acute leukemia. And a third woman who's in her 30s who's pregnant and has a diagnosis with leukemia, which really is challenging. 
leukemia is a cancer and cancer involves the uncontrolled growth of cells. And there's cells that ignore the body's normal signaling to stop growing. The cancer is rude. It invades other tissues around it. It ignores boundaries that other cells normally respect. So when those cells grow faster than other cells around them, and that occurs in the breast, a, a woman gets a lump. When that happens in the lungs, a person gets a mass. When that happens in the bone marrow, uh, which is considered a liquid space, you don't have your bone marrow doesn't expand like other tissues. It doesn't grow bigger like the stomach does after you, you uh, eat a big meal. So these cells fill up this narrow space within the bone marrow, which is what I call a high rent district, and basically take it over. And the normal cells in the bone marrow die out. Well, those normal cells are the ones that make the red blood cells that bring oxygen to our tissues. When those are low, we're anemic. They make the white blood cells, that's our immune system. And they make the platelets that help stop bleeding. As leukemia, a cancer takes over that space in the bone marrow and those normal cells die out, our platelets go very low or more prone to bleeding. And often our patients will come to our attention because they're having nosebleeds or, or bleeding from their gastrointestinal tract. They'll have infections because their immune system is no longer functional and they'll be extremely fatigued because they're so profoundly anemic. When this happens, what are the different kinds of treatments for the different kinds of cancers there that you've spoken about? Right. Well, we use chemotherapy. So when acute leukemia in particular, and let me back up a second, there are two major branches of leukemia, acute leukemia and chronic leukemia. Acute leukemia comes on fast. We can't screen for it. A person can have absolutely normal blood counts and feel great four to six weeks before a diagnosis. And it, it comes on hard. And often we meet these people for the first time in the emergency room because they become so sick, they, have, they think they have a terrible flu or they might think they have COVID-19 and go to the, the ER and it turns out they have acute leukemia. Chronic leukemia comes on more slowly and over a protracted period of time. So when somebody has acute leukemia, we consider it a medical emergency. Their immune system is no longer functional. They are susceptible to infections. And if they get one of those infections, they can be life-threatening. People can die from infections with acute leukemia, honestly, within hours. So we bring them into the hospital, particularly if they're younger, and we try to initiate chemotherapy within 48 hours. The goal of the chemotherapy is that it takes advantage of these cancer cells that are growing out of control. The cancer cells are growing so quickly, the chemotherapy that we use basically infiltrates the cell's DNA like a Trojan horse. It replaces one of the normal components of the DNA and the cell can't replicate anymore because that abnormal component of the DNA is now inserted. Cells that are growing quickly are more susceptible to that, of course, because they're constantly incorporating things into their DNA, so cancer cells actually die out. Other cells in our body that also are growing all the time, though, are affected by chemotherapy. So if you think about what's growing on your body all the time, well, your hair. So that's why people who get chemotherapy often lose their hair, because it's affecting cells that are growing quickly. For how long has that been the kind of go-to treatment? How old is that treatment? And, and since it became the, the go-to way to deal with this disease, how, how has it changed? Well, it's embarrassing to say the backbone of our treatment for one type of acute leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, uh, has been in play for almost 50 years and hasn't changed that much. Time and again, we've tried other drugs or adding drugs to that backbone of two chemotherapy approaches uh, 
to those two drugs, and it hasn't helped. Uh, people haven't lived longer. The two drugs that we use are one is called cytarabine or Aracy, and the other one is called donorubicin. Uh, and we give seven days of the cytarabine, three days of the donorubicin. So commonly, this regimen is called seven plus three. A person gets seven days of one drug, three of another overlapping, but then that person is actually in the hospital for four to six weeks because as that chemotherapy works, it wipes out the bone marrow and a person's immune system is, is wiped out even, even more than it was from the leukemia itself. So they have to stay in the hospital for four to six weeks until that immune system recovers and they can safely be sent back home. So those two drugs have remained the standard for decades. Uh, more recently, drugs have been developed that take advantage of the genetics of the leukemia. What went wrong in the bone marrow cells that caused the leukemia to grow uncontrollably? And we've slowly been adding drugs that target those genetic abnormalities to that seven plus three backbone. And am I right in thinking as well that one of the places in which there has been development is drugs that make chemotherapy, you know, less difficult to go through? Am I, is that correct? Or? So one of the approaches we've used, just like you said, is to add a third drug to, those, to, to that backbone of 7 plus 3, either to enhance the activity of the two drugs or to minimize the resistance of the leukemia cells to those two drugs. Um, we've tried and tried again, haven't had as much success with that. But the one area where we have had success is targeting genetically one of those types of resistant leukemia cells. Drug called mitostorin targets a genetic abnormality called FLT3, FLT3, in leukemia cells. And a study that actually took 10 years to complete worldwide finally showed an improvement in overall survival for patients who have this FLT3 genetic abnormality who received this drug mitostorin compared to those who didn't receive the drug. Could you talk a little bit about as well where, where you see the kind of treatment heading? I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit there, but if you could kind of, you know, have a wish list of certain ways that drugs would behave into the future that would help you do your work, what, what would that look like? No, that's a great question. I always, I have a made up drug name. I, I always call it tumor killamab, right? <laughs> I wish I had tumor killamab that would eliminate <laughs> leukemia because in the end, my, I look at my life's mission is to put myself out of work. Um, if I can if I could uh, help develop a drug that eliminated leukemia entirely, I would be the, the I think, the happiest person on earth. My dad was a, a newspaper a journalist. He was a reporter for a newspaper in the United States. And, and I, I always consider my dad to be a really bright guy. But he used to ask me a, what now, in retrospect, is a simplistic question. Why can't we beat cancer? Right? I was going through my training. I came on staff. I was an oncologist focused on cancer. And he would ask me this repeatedly. Why can't we beat cancer yet? And the reason is that cancer isn't one diagnosis. Of course, it's a number of diagnoses, breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, et cetera. But even within leukemia, there are dozens and dozens of subtypes of leukemia, each driven by different genetic abnormalities. So my wish list is that we would have drugs that target those genetic abnormalities along with the standard chemotherapy that we use to beat leukemia. The challenge with that is that these genetic abnormalities may only occur in 5% of patients with acute leukemia. 
So what we're increasingly doing is testing for these genetic abnormalities at a patient's diagnosis and hoping that we already have a drug that's on the market that we can use in addition to the standard chemotherapy. The problem is that our understanding of the biology of leukemia is years and years and years ahead of the drugs we have available to manage. I've asked you a lot about medicine and drugs and that kind of thing, but your book very much a book about people and about relationships and about decisions. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you see your role as a doctor in people's decision-making about the kind of treatments that they want to take or don't want to take, as is often the case. And could you speak a little bit about how that works? How do you see your role in decision-making for patients? You know, I, I often reflect on the science that drew me into medicine and into oncology. Uh, Cancer is an awful thing. I I refer to it as a malignant golem. It's a monster. And as I said before, it's rude, but it's absolutely fascinating how it is able to survive despite the onslaught of of chemotherapy or radiation therapy that we throw at it. But what really drew me in at the end of the day are the, the brave and motivated people who face down this malignant golem and maintain their humanity throughout it. Um, in the book, I tell the story of, of the seminal moment when I decided I wanted to go into oncology. And it involved a, a woman who was in her 30s who had a horrible um, ovarian cancer that had spread throughout her body. It was my first night on call as an intern, which is always kind of a dramatic moment in, in a person's training, when all of a sudden you're now officially a doctor and making decisions in the middle of the night without as much help around to, uh, to ask other people. And I was in uh, the intensive care unit when she came in because her lungs were filling up with fluid because of these tumors that had spread to her lungs. And when she arrived in the intensive care unit, she actually changed her mind. She was about to be put on a breathing machine, but then said, you know what? I'm ready to die. And she decided she didn't want to breathe her last breaths with the assistance of a machine of mechanical ventilation. So she was lying in bed and uh, it was it was getting towards evening when her husband came in with her two children, um, aged eight and 10. And this was just, I mean, emotionally devastating for all of us because we realized she was saying goodbye to her kids. She was going to die that night. If she didn't go on to a ventilator, she was going to die quickly. She said goodbye to her kids. And there were more than a few of us who had to, to duck out to, to cry ourselves when, when, when we saw this. And then a couple of hours later, her husband came back with her best friend carrying a, a shopping bag uh, from, a, from a local pharmacy. And he stood by her bed with, with her best friend and they were holding up a clipboard and she was writing all night long. And I went to my senior resident to me who was, you know, basically had to instruct me on how to go to the bathroom because I proved myself so incompetent the entire night as a first night intern. I didn't know what to do and asked him what she was doing. And um, he said, she's, she's, she's filling out cards. And I thought he meant three by five cards, right? Because we were writing notes on three by five cards all, all night long about our patients to keep track of all the tests we had sent. But actually she was filling out uh, birthday cards and holiday cards and bar and bat mitzvah cards um, and cards for the moments in their lives over the next decade that she wouldn't be able to spend with them. And uh, towards the morning, literally as sun was breaking over the Charles River outside of the, the hospital, I was at Mass General Hospital in Boston, she had finished her last card and asked that we increase the, the morphine she was receiving and she died soon afterwards. 
So you, you initiated this conversation talking about the decision-making that people make. That's the sort of decisions. I mean, my God, what would you or I do in that same situation? I have kids now. Would I spend my last evening writing cards to them? Would they even want to receive them when they got older? Or would they want to remember me when I was more hardy in hail and not as, as fragile with, a, with an unsteady hand writing cards? So that sort of decision-making has always drawn me in. And uh, in acute leukemia, that sort of decision-making is incredibly important and has to be made within 48 hours of when somebody thought she had the flu. And all of a sudden, I'm standing over her bed saying, we need to make a decision about chemotherapy. It's, it, it's one of the most, leukemia in particular, is one of the most aggressive cancers a person can get. And unfortunately, that decision-making, which may be six weeks in somebody who has breast cancer from the time she first senses a lump and taking a shower is truncated into just a few hours. Yeah, yeah. No, that part of the book actually brought me to tears. <laughs> I found it incredibly moving. And then there's, there's another part of the book where you talk about something like the umbilical cord blood. And I, and I found that quite interesting as well, where you're kind of, people are trying to make decisions in good faith and you kind of have to interject perhaps and sort of say, listen, this is maybe not quite what you, you think it is. Are there, ever, are there ever awkward situations in which you feel like your professional advice is perhaps uh, in opposition to someone's desires or what they would like to do? How do you handle that kind of uh, negotiation? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So to put a little context to your, to your question, one of the treatments that we sometimes offer to people who have leukemia is a bone marrow transplant. If the bone marrow is corrupted by cancer cells, one approach could be we give whopping doses of chemotherapy, knock that corrupted bone marrow to kingdom come, and replace it with a healthy bone marrow from somebody else. It's really appealing, and it does lead to, lead to cures. Uh, for acute leukemia. One of the sources of healthy bone marrow are umbilical cord bloods. Believe it or not, when a baby is born, and I don't know if you've been in this position, but I have where I'm by my wife's bedside and the doctor says, do you want to cut the cord? You, you cut the cord, but what's left over in that cord are actually these juicy stem cells, which can function as bone marrow cells. And uh, people often save them. Uh, and there are companies that I, I think are somewhat predatory that capitalize on this fear that new parents have that, my God, one day my baby might get cancer. If there's any way I can save some portion of that baby's stem cells, these, these juicy cord blood cells when that person's born, could, I could save their life one day. So why don't I go ahead and bank them and store them for years, for 19 years, 20 years? Well, the cost of that over time is probably about $5,000. And I have saved all of my kids' cord blood, but not for themselves. I've donated it to the American Red Cross so that one day somebody who needs a bone marrow transplant actually will get one of my kids' cord bloods. And I think that's what we should all be doing. It's yeah. easy to get. You literally take the cut umbilical cord and empty what's in it into a test tube. It's that easy. And then save it. A company or the Red Cross saves it. And one day a complete stranger could, could have his or her life saved from that cord blood. The challenge with banking the cord blood for your own baby is that it probably will never be used for the $5,000 you're investing. And if you do the math, which I do through the book, of what's the likelihood that your baby will get a cancer and then have a cancer that eventually needs a bone marrow transplant, it's about the same risk as getting struck by lightning in your lifetime. So if you feel as if you would invest $5,000 in something that would prevent yourself from getting struck by lightning and that that's a worthwhile investment, 
then go ahead, bank the cord blood for your baby. And that's a risk benefit analysis that people will make. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that, that did, those numbers didn't add up, which is why I donated my baby's cord blood to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So at times, circling back to what you initially asked about when patients may make assumptions, want to do something in good faith, I feel as if it's my role to both support those assumptions to say, you know what, that's exactly what I would have thought also. So I kind of, I investigated it and here's what I actually learned about it. So what about doing, what about donating the cord blood instead, instead of uh, saving mm -hmm. it for a baby who will in all likelihood never leave? Following on that thread of sort of cost and the nature of the intersection between business and healthcare. I'm in the UK where we have an NHS, which is quite different from the American system of healthcare. And I wanted to ask you if there have been instances where the nature of private healthcare in the US has impacted the speed of diagnosis and the options available to people to treat cancer based on you know their wealth or, or their income, essentially? So it's, a, it's another great question. So one area where uh, we run into obstacles is in doing those genetic tests at the start of somebody's cancer diagnosis. So as I mentioned, we now have drugs that can target some of those genetic abnormalities in, for example, leukemia. Um, but to identify those genetic abnormalities, we need to send a sophisticated genetics test that's referred to as next-generation sequencing where we will look at the, for example, the 60 most common genetic abnormalities that are associated with leukemia, see which of those our patient's leukemia has, and then whether any of those are, are what we call, quote unquote, actionable, meaning that we have a drug that has activity against that genetic abnormality. Um, that test can run anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000. And whether or not insurance will pay for it varies state by state in the United States. So. I have to have a conversation with my patients at their diagnosis to say, listen, we'd really like to send this test. It may help your treatment either now or in the future, but there's a financial risk of $1,000 that you may have to pay out of pocket if your insurance denies it. Um, and just a couple of days ago, literally in, in clinic, I had this conversation with a patient who could barely afford the, to pay for the gas for her car trip to and from clinic. And she said to me, there's no way I can afford $1,000, so we're going to skip the test. And I hate to say it, that may compromise her care. I may not realize that she has genetic abnormalities for her bone marrow disorder that I would have drugs that I could use to treat. So it affects it on that end of things. On the other end of things, a lot of insurance in the United States will pay for drugs that you get by vein, but not drugs that you get that are pills. Or they'll be disingenuous about it. So I've had patients who say they got a letter from their insurance company that says, congratulations, we're going to pay for this chemotherapy. Your copay is only going to be $7,000 per month. <laughs> Thank you very much. So that's really where I run into challenges. And we have to make some hard decisions sometimes about the types of, of either uh, chemotherapy drugs we're going to offer our patients based on what insurance will cover, mm -hmm. or even antibiotics that we're going to use to help treat infections associated with leukemia, because as I mentioned before, a person's immune system is compromised, so they're more prone to unusual infections because the antibiotics are too expensive. A, a typical chemotherapy pill in the United States to treat leukemia uh, runs over $100,000 per year. It, so it is mind-blowing how expensive that is. It's unconscionable, but it means that part of my informed consent for my patients involves risks of the drug, benefits of the drug, 
alternatives to the drug and the financial toxicity of the drug. Hmm. Would you rather be able to do your job without having to consider the financial aspects of those things? Yeah, I I love rainbows and unicorns also, but it'll never happen. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, the health system in which I practice is uh, it's uh, going to be a constant issue, and it's not going away. So I tell my patients up front. I talk about costs, and I say to them, "It's not because I think you can't afford it. I don't know if you can afford it or not, but I would be a bad doctor if I wrote a prescription for a drug that my patients can't afford." One of the um, final things I want to ask you about is obviously we're all at various stages in this pandemic and a lot of people are going to be living through loss and grief because of illness and disease. And you're someone whose profession means that they're in contact with those kind of experiences, you know, very frequently. And I was wondering if you had any advice for people in your profession. How do you how do you live on a day to day basis with these kinds of experiences? So one of my patients made the comment when the COVID pandemic really hit, gee, it's as if the whole world now has leukemia. <laughs> I thought that was a, 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 a incredibly insightful and, and prescient, frankly. And he was referring to the fact that we all are now on, uh, have precautions that my leukemia patients have been using uh, their, since their diagnosis, right? My leukemia patients walk around thinking about washing their hands all the time wearing masks, avoiding contacts with sick people, minimizing visitors. This is the life of a leukemia patient. We're all living it right now. The other aspect to it though, and I don't know if my patient intended it this way, is that we're all dealing uh, to some extent with grief and loss. I miss seeing people. I miss physical contact with patients and, and, and with friends and family. My patients, probably about half of them, end a visit with a hug. And um, we can't do that anymore. Hard to hug someone over Zoom for virtual visits as well. Mm. So there's that kind of loss. There's a loss of affection and kind of a face-to-face human contact. There's loss of being able to read somebody's, someone's reaction to illness. Uh, there was a classic study that was uh, conducted decades ago, and it's, it's been criticized, but I think the bottom line of it is pretty good. O- only about 10% of what we communicate to each other are the words themselves. Everything else is facial expressions, reactions, the unconsciously noticing someone's eyes widen, body language. And we're missing that now by not seeing people. And we're even missing it with people wearing masks. So there's that sort of loss. And there's the grief over people who are dying and who are getting sick. And we all know someone who's contracted COVID and who's gotten sick from it. So you know, the way my patients deal with this and the way I, I try to help them on this journey is by, uh, first of all, acknowledging what's going on. And I'll say to my patients, if, if I have a patient who, or a family member of a patient who starts crying in, the, in my clinic, I, I'll, I'll make the comment, often they'll apologize for crying. And I would say, what, what are you apologizing for? Crying is a, is, is a normal reaction to what's going on. This, is, this stinks. Illness stinks and leukemia stinks. And I always say to my patients, I worry more about the people who don't cry, who aren't acknowledging the tragedy of what's going on than, than those who do. So I think the first thing we do is we acknowledge that this stinks. It, it's not fun being in the midst of a pandemic. And we acknowledge that loss. And then we try to focus on the things that we're getting out of it. And there are some silver linings to all of this. And I'll say personally, one of them is that since my kids have limited social contacts, they actually linger after dinner uh, where they haven't for years. 
<laughs> right? Yeah. If if your options are social contact with your parents versus nothing, sometimes you choose your parents and that's okay. So uh, we get more time from that. We get more time as a family interacting. We get more time appreciating being outdoors than I think we used to before the pandemic. And I try to encourage my patients to think about it in those terms. Too. Okay. And then the final thing that I'd, I'd like to ask you actually is how do you see your responsibility as a doctor versus your responsibility as a, as a writer? Because obviously you're handling huge amounts of responsibilities as someone's doctor, but also as an author, you're, you're writing about people's experiences. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the differences there and how you feel about your role as a writer writing about these kinds of experiences. That's a question that I get a lot when I give talks about writing, particularly to healthcare professionals. And that's the question I usually get from medical students. And they'll ask, well, are you in some ways violating your patient's privacy by writing about them? And there there are a couple of ways I've thought through this. And I've thought through this long and hard over the years. First of all, I I sought professional advice. I actually went to a bioethicist to talk about this um, and about whether I was violating my patient's privacy and if and if I was doing right by them. And his response was partly, he said, these are your stories as much as they're their stories. So it's okay to you to tell them. And he reflected back to me that what I'm doing, doing is singing the songs of my patients. I have so much respect for the people I treat. I'm really celebrating them in writing. I'm never criticizing a patient in writing. I'm trying to understand what their experience is like. It's, it's like the ultimate in empathic exercise. Um, I'm trying to live the life that they're living to understand the decisions they make so that it, in the end, it makes me a better doctor. And I'm very careful to provide just enough details about a person so that it makes the person real, because these are real people I'm, I'm writing about, but not so much that they're identifiable. And I have had, despite that, I have had patients who have seen that I wrote about them in essays months or even years later, uh, and actually the universally they have been thrilled by it. Um, one of the most delightful stories about this, I wrote a, an essay a few years ago for the New York Times about a man I took care of, an older gentleman, who had not one, not two, not three, but four cancers. I mean, the poor guy, if he didn't have bad luck, he wouldn't have any luck at all. But he had the most resilient personality I've ever seen. And I was treating him for his leukemia while he had metastatic lung cancer. And he had raised his granddaughter. Uh, His granddaughter, his his own daughter, wound up having a, a child in her teens and then got hooked on drugs and, and was kind of in and out of jail. So given the instability of her life, he took over, he and his wife took over the, the care of their granddaughter and his granddaughter was getting married. And um, he said to me, his goal, and as I talk about goals of, of, of treatment with my patients, was to walk her down the aisle. That's all he wanted to do was walk her down the aisle. So we had to do everything humanly possible to stave off his two cancers to get him to that wedding ceremony. And the week beforehand, he wound up, uh, he became very dizzy and kept falling. And it turns out the lung cancer had spread to his brain. Well, we gave him steroids and shrank that enough that he made it to that ceremony. And uh, he was able to walk her down the aisle. He actually showed me the photo standing next to her as they're starting that journey. And he came to see me in clinic with a big t-shirt he had made that said, I made it on it. And it was this really remarkable guy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he soon went to hospice and I wrote a story about him and his um, kids actually got back to me and said, we saw the story and on our dad deathbed, we read it to him, um, which was so meaningful to me that they saw what I saw in him, right? They appreciated the fact that I was celebrating this man's spirit that, you know, God bless him. I wish, uh, I, I hope that if I'm ever in that situation, I have the same same attitude as he does. Yeah. That seems like a really nice place to finish. I just want to say thanks so much for, for speaking with me today. It's been really incredible listening to you talk about your work. Thank you so much for, uh, for your interest and for, uh, for doing this, Sam. It's been great. You're more than welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacological Histories from the MIT Press Podcast. Thank you to Kristen Galano for providing the soundtrack and to Samantha Doyle who edits and mixes the podcast together. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help us grow our audience, please do share the podcast with other people who might like it. Subscribe, like, and rate the podcast on whatever medium you're using. If you have any thoughts or suggestions for the podcast, please feel free to reach out via info at mitpress.org.uk.